Is America founded on racism and slavery? What are the blind spots of neo-integrationism? And how does social interventionism put our liberties and freedoms in danger? Hey, it's Lucas Grobot, and you're listening to The Lucas Grobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. Before we get into today's episode, which is a continuation of a question from the previous episode, I want to mention my book, Anchored the Discipline to Stop Drifting. In my book, I talk about how there was a a season of my life where I thought that if I was going to reach the pinnacles of greatness, that I needed to overhaul my life every couple of years and, and find new and radical ways of doing things. But boy, was I wrong. Instead, I discovered a principle of improving 1%. And I found that if I made small 1% positive changes in a few areas of my life, that over the years, those changes would have compounding interest. And my life would be exponentially greater without putting in that much energy, without trying to totally transform my life and vice versa. A few small bad habits makes our lives exponentially worse as time goes on. We actually mentioned this this theory or this principle in part in episode 157 when we talked about the French Revolution. How in the French Revolution they said, we don't want to try to make small incremental changes to build and slowly improve society and sand the rough edges away. We're going to just overthrow everything in, in this bloody reign of terror. And it was every 5, 10, 15 years, there was another bloody revolution in France. And likewise in our lives, if every 10 years we think that we need to totally overthrow everything, we're going to lose all the progress that we have made. So if you feel like you are in that place, you're tempted to go to that place, I strongly suggest my book, Anchored the Discipline to Stop Drifting. Getting this book would be a 1% change that could have incredible compounding effects on your life if you take action. So my book, Anchored the Discipline to Stop Drifting, the link is in the show notes. Now, back to the show. As we dive into the show, you will find out that we are talking a lot about U.S. politics and U.S. history in this episode. Now, I'm not a huge fan of U.S. history. I don't really consider it my strong suit, but the question forces us to go there. So before you check out and skip the episode, if you're not in the U.S. or you're not a fan of U.S. history, there are very important worldviews and frameworks and ideologies that we are going to be pulling from history so that we can see how we can better frame our personal lives, our family life, society, our businesses, our organizations. From this episode, we will be able to pull out some distinct principles that will greatly improve our likelihood for success. So, as you're listening through this episode, yes, listen to the, the historical pieces, but make sure that you're listening for the ideologies that are being argued, the ideologies of, of both sides that are being tabled, 
And how can we glean from those, apply them to our lives so that we're not becoming controlling, top-down, overbearing leaders in our life, in our family, or in our workplace, but rather we are giving liberty and freedom to people while providing the support that people need so that we can have interdependent relationships rather than codependent, manipulative, power-hungry relationships. So the question, this question is from Aaron. You may remember it from last episode, but I'm going to skim over the, the part of the question that we are going to be addressing today. Aaron says, it seems that you conclude in episode 160 on justice versus social justice that there are not unjust structures which do hold entire groups of people back. I would reason that some of these issues should be addressed in a public or government manner in large part because the system was created by or at least enabled by the government in the first place. Pause there at this question. I'm going to make a point and this point I'm going to be making for the rest of this episode. I fully agree with Aaron here that there have been laws and systematic structures that were put in place by the U.S. government and by governments all across the world today. They are stepping in and trying to control segments of society. Social interventionism. It's where the government steps in and tries to control society. And when government steps in, they're stepping over their bounds and domains of authority. And that always produces toxic environments. So, spoiler alert for this episode, do I think that the government should then step in again and intervene even more to try to correct their mistake? No, I do not. And that is the issue that I have been and am arguing, that true justice is taking an incident between two people, between two parties, where a law has been broken and someone has been violated and then serving out justice equitably without partiality, without looking at one person and another person based on the color of their skin or their income or their age. It's being blind to that. That's what justice is. Whereas social justice says we are going to be partial in our judgment and saying, well, one group, they are at a disadvantage and therefore we're going to take from another group, not individuals, we're going to take from the groups and try to get equality of outcome. These Always, 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 when you see that, it's going, it's infringing on someone's freedom and it's, by its very nature and very definition, unjust and will always have negative consequences. So, should the U.S. government or any government correct their mistake by making another mistake? No. Do two wrongs make a right? No. What the government should do is to step out of the sphere of society that they have impeded itself upon and say, you know what? We made a mistake by creating these unjust systems. We are going to cancel those laws, but we are not going to try to then rectify them 
through taking from one group to give to another group arbitrarily. It is a recipe for disaster. Aaron's question goes on. Historically and scientifically recognized systematic issues like the gender pay gap, which we covered in the previous episode. Spoiler alert, there is no real difference when you break down the on the 25 um, variables that determine how much money a person makes. There's no difference between the male and female genders in America or probably in most of the developed Western nations. But there are many places across the world where there are codified laws that tell you how much a man or a woman or specific uh, ethnic group can or cannot get paid or what jobs they can or cannot have. So that does exist in the world, but it does not currently exist in America today, despite popular opinion. This question goes on. Jim Crow laws and their effects still seen today in the USA and the healthcare system in the, in the states, which puts people in crippling debt overnight, no matter how hard they work, are just a few examples. There are incredible disparities that come about as a result of systems which have been put in place by ideologies and governments, and your conclusions did not leave any room for them. First, we're going to hit these Jim Crow laws. And in order to address these Jim Crow laws, we have to ask, was America built on racist ideologies? Aaron sent in, in another following question. He said, I don't see a line separating the racist America of the past with the non-racist America today. Even as policies changed, it seems that the very real cultural holds over towards minority groups, which still needs to be addressed today. So he's saying that in the past, America was racist. And now, even though maybe some of the laws changed, it still seems like they are just as systematically oppressive and racist to quote unquote minorities. The issue, the, the real issue that we're, we're discussing here is the question of first and foremost, was America founded on racism and slavery? And this is a, a proposition that has been pros, proposed by Nicole Hannah-Jones in her 1916 project, which says that America was founded in 1916 when the first slaves were brought to the American shores, which that is not when America was founded. Now, first, racism is hatred. It is the hate. Let's define it. It's the hatred of any skin color by any skin color at any time, any place. So whether you're, you can be racist if you're black, white, yellow, green, uh, octagonal shaped. If you hate someone that looks different than you for whatever reason, that is racism. And it has been happening forever in humanity and it will continue to happen forever in humanity because racism is sin. It is a hatred, hatred in our hearts. And anyone is capable of hatred. So first off, the idea that we might be able to eradicate hatred is, it's just absurd. Like the government can't come in unless they can totally control you and take away all freedom from you. And still that would not take away racism and hatred. So 
this is, it's not something that was invented with America. Second off, America was founded in 1776, not 1619. America was founded because they said, hey, we don't like what Britain is doing. And it was founded on the very ideals that slavery should be abolished. America was founded based on the ideas of Aristotle, Descartes, Aquinas, Milton, Locke. And the Declaration of Independence was written by Thomas Jefferson. In 1777, just one year after the Declaration of Independence was written, Vermont abolished slavery. So from the very inception of America, they said, all men are equal. And then from that document, Vermont said, hey, since all men are equal and slavery is a wicked, horrible, horrible oppressive system, we are going to abolish it. From year one, America has been in the business of actually abolishing slavery. It was, a, it was never a debate for America if we were going to have slavery or not, but it was always the debate of how would we get rid of this sinful, hateful practice that had been around for tens of thousands of years. Slavery has existed all throughout history. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Slavic person. I originally come from Poland. The word slave derives from the word Slav. My, my people group were enslaved for almost on and off for a thousand years being traded to Arabia, to Spain, to the Balkans, to North, to North Africa. Even still, there's a huge slave trade that comes out of Eastern Europe and Eastern European countries. There's a huge slave trade. There's a huge slave trade still today in Libya. I've lived in cities where multiple nations within the last 30 or 40, 50 years have fought over the city that I used to live in because of the slave trade that happened there. And they wanted to have that central control of the slave trade. That was just within the last 50 years. Slavery has been around. It is a horrible, evil act. But America was founded on saying, how can we get rid of it? In 1787, George Washington said, no new slaves, no new slaves can come into America to any of the established territories. 1778, America was founded on ending slavery and racism. There was a a 20-year moratorium on the slave trade when America was founded, essentially saying to the southern states, hey, In 20 years, this show's over. Slavery is going to come to an end. And when Thomas Jefferson, the man who wrote the Declaration of Independence, he introduced a bill in the early 1970s in the Virginia House of Commons, which stated that slavery is an awful practice and we need to get rid of it. Now, yes, ironically, he was a slave over himself. He was a slave owner, but he was still arguing for a morally good society. He had a checkered past, but he's still arguing for a morally good society. And I want to ask you, do you have a checkered past? I have a checkered past. I'm pretty sure every individual has a checkered past. And yet here we are, you and I, we are both arguing for a morally 
good society. And that is a good thing. This theme is going to continue. In 1790, nearly every northern state in America had abolished slavery. That is 13 years after it's founded. Every northern state abolished slavery. By 1807, Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the Declaration of Independence, he became the third president. On the first day that he was able to abolish any new slaves from coming into America, guess what? He abolished it. He ended the incoming of new slaves to America in 1807. Just 30 short short years after America was founded. It has always been, America has always been a place that holds up the ideals that man is equal, that all men are created equal. And they worked from day one to abolish racism and slavery in America. And no other country, no other country across the globe has gone through such lengths. America went through a civil war costing 600,000 American lives over slavery. Essentially, we said slavery is so wicked. It is so horrible that we are willing to go to war against our fellow countrymen. To end this practice, which was done by, by 10% of of the South, right? So slave owners constituted 10% of the South. It wasn't, it wasn't every single person in America was a slave owner, 10%. And we said, you know what? This practice is so evil that we must do away for it with it. That we must do away with it. And who, what was the organization that was pushing the abolishment of slavery? It was the church the religious fear, and that is where our morality and our moral compass must come from. That is where. And that is how Thaddeus Stevens, he was inspired by a pastor to go to Congress and say that slavery is anti-American. We must do it away. Abraham Lincoln, he was the first Republican president. The Republican Party was founded on abolishing slavery. The whole idea behind the Republican Party was we need to abolish slavery. Abraham Lincoln, the first Republican president, said we are ending slavery. All men are created equal and free, and we are willing to go to war over this. Frederick Douglass, a black Republican. Now, you might ask, well, why are you bringing up Republicans and Democrats? It's an important point, not because of the titles or the parties, but because of the ideologies behind those titles. Frederick Douglass Douglass said, we need to abolish slavery. Why? Because the Declaration of Independence says that all men are equal and free. And therefore, we need to abolish slavery. And this is the premise that one of the main differences between the right and the left or Republicans and Democrats in the the American system is that on the right, we have a, we believe that the, the individual is the supreme expression of the state. 
that the, the state is in place to serve the individual and the individual gives the state power. On the left, it's quite the opposite. It is, it is the group. And again, we talked about this in episode 157 with the, the American and the French Revolution. On, on the left, oftentimes they're looking at political identity groups. They're saying, well, this is, you know, this group is white, this group is black, this group is is Jewish, this group is Irish. And they're splitting everything up into power imbalances and identity groups. And they're saying we need to balance society. And it 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 is. It sounds much more compassionate saying, well, these people are at a disadvantage. But for sure, during slavery, you know what the argument of so many slave owners was? Well, these people were actually helping them. And I've heard this argument across the world today about certain labor practices. Well, these people, we are actually helping them. Yeah, their living conditions might not be the best, but we're actually helping these people more than you realize. And without us, you know, where would they be? Like, if we abolish slavery, like, well, what are all these poor people going to do? Because in their minds, well, they're less than human. They're a disadvantage. They, they couldn't possibly do anything. That was the ideologies of the left, of the Democrats in the South who fought to keep slavery alive. The Democrats, the Democrats, which founded the KKK. And it was the Republicans who said, no, every single individual, it doesn't matter the color of their skin. They are powerful people made in the image of God with agency, and they should be free to act in the world without us discriminating against them. Now, another amazing figure in American history, Martin Luther King Jr., who also had a very checkered past. And yet, he argued for the moral good in society. And I think we should praise both Thomas Jefferson and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., despite their moral failings in their personal lives, we can see that they stood, that they stood for a moral good in society. Everyone has moral failings. One, one thing that when we look at our parents, we need to honor our mother, mother and father. And when we honor our mother and father, whether it's the mother or father of, of our blood or of our nation or of our, our leadership, if we show honor in the places that we can show honor, that is a good thing. Rather than nitpicking every single moral failure because you and I have moral failures too. Just because we make mistake does not mean that we should be doxxed or canceled or fired because of our shortcoming or, or, or everything that that person has ever done is now you know off limits and tainted by their shortcomings. Let's rather honor people for the good that they fought for rather than condemning them for mistakes that they have made in their personal lives. Back to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He said, I came to cash in on the promissory note of equality given to me in the Declaration of Independence. I'm here to cash in on that. So 
was America as a country, as the ideals and the framework by which it was founded on, was it inherently racist set up to, to essentially profit off of slavery? No, quite the opposite. We said, they said that this evil exists within the heart of man and it is evil and we are going to do away with it. We are going to do away with it. So now back to Aaron's question. Aaron's argument was that Jim Crow, the Jim Crow laws and redlining laws still have effect in America society today. So what happened was after Abraham Lincoln totally did away with slavery in America, the Democrats in the South still didn't like it. So they said, well, okay, they might be equal, but we're equal but separate. So we're going to separate, forcibly separate the blacks from the whites. And that's where segregation came in. This is what the Jim Crow laws were. And, And horrible, wicked, evil laws and horrible, wicked, evil ideologies. Be- between 1870 and, and 1835, I believe, there was around 3,500 lynchings. 3,500 lynchings of, of women, men, and children. Horrible laws separating people into specific neighborhoods saying only black people can live here, only white people can go here. The school system segregated, saying a black person can't go to a white school, a white person can't go to a black school. The bus was separated. Black people at the back of the bus, white people at the front. And business owners actually fought this. Business owners actually didn't want this. Many business owners fought against these Jim Crow laws because it was bad for business. Now, I think that black people in America had it far worse than a a business owner. But my point being is that it was not something that, because this is the argument that is made, is that, oh, well, it was actually a, a byproduct of capitalism and people just wanted cheap and free labor when actually it inhibited people from getting cheap and free labor. It inhibited people from having a competitive marketplace. It inhibited people from being able to sell their goods and, and services and products as the way that they wanted. So, but as the argument for neo-integrationism goes, which is saying we need to further integrate society, what they say is, well, there is these Jim Crow laws that happened for so long that segregated um, blacks from whites in society. And after the civil rights movement came about, they, they began to put in affirmative action laws and plans to forcibly integrate the blacks and the white schools, and to break up all these wicked, evil laws. But what we have found was, over the last 50 years, that people like to self-sort. People sort themselves out. And they gather around the people that they hold the, the same cultural values and norms, the same ideologies. Now, culture does not come from the color of your skin, but culture comes from the values that you hold, the ideologies that you live by and follow. It also comes from people that we feel comfortable around. So people self-sort and have self-sorted for thousands of years, and that happens all across the world. We can see this with the Hadistic Jews, 
in Brooklyn, New York, where the Jewish community groups together. We can see this with Chinatown, where all, all the, the, the Chinese or Asian minority groups clump together because they have shared cultural traditions. People self-sort. But what neo-integrationism and neo-integrationists say is like, hey, men, blacks and whites are still segregated in society. There's still not an equal distribution of blacks or minority groups in your company, in your school, in your university. We need to make sure that the same amount and percentage of blacks or Hispanics that or Asians or Caucasians that are in the community are represented in your workplace and in your school. And I think that's a great thing. I think it's great for us to have people from different ethnic backgrounds. But the idea that if it's not, the idea that if you don't have the same makeup of ethnicity in your city as you do in your company, that somehow that's a system of inequality. Well, that's just absolutely wrong. And here's why it's wrong. And here's where that idea even comes from. So in 1954, when the Supreme Court Chief Justice, Justice Earl Warren, gave his verdict on Brown versus the Board of Education, which deemed that school segregation was unlawful, which it totally is, he said this, that separate education facilities are inherently unequal. This is not true. The Dems in the South said that we are equal but separate, which is also not true. It's not true. Equal but separate, what does that mean? No. But Supreme Court Justice Earl Warren also made a slight misstep. He said that separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. What happened was the government stepped away from forcing segregation, which is social interventionism, which is all the problems that we have talked about. The government stepping in and creating unjust systems by judging partially based on someone's skin color. So they forced segregation, which we said, well, that is wicked and evil. And then they moved to try to correct their mistake by forcing integration. By forcing integration, by forcing busing, by forcefully breaking up communities, which actually hurt the black community. Coleman Hughes writes, if separate is unequal by its very nature, then it doesn't matter whether blacks and whites have remained clustered by the law or by choice. Either way, we must integrate before blacks and Hispanics can excel academically. What he's saying is, if separate is not equal, then we will not have equality until we aren't separate at all. But statistics and the studies show that that's not true. They were unequal because they didn't have government funding. They were unequal because their parents were barred from getting certain jobs in society. They were unequal because the students were barred from entering certain schools, even though they had the grades and were competitive enough to enter those schools. 
Thomas Sowell writes about this in his book, Discriminations and Disparities. He writes about the Dunbar High School, which was just a few blocks away from the Supreme Court. It was an all-black high school in Washington, D.C., and it outscored two out of the three white academic high schools in that city as early as 1899. Under Jim Crow, under redlining, this high school, Dunbar High School, all-black high school, outperformed two out of three white academic high schools in the region, in the city. And they were neither destitute nor affluent. They weren't just super rich, and that's why. And they weren't just super broke. They were a mix of it all. The Dunbar students exceeded the national average on IQ tests despite the school's poor segregation era funding. The point that Solwell is making here is that a school does not need to be integrated with a, a great makeup of the city in order for the students to come out successful. And in fact, it is a very racist idea that a black person or a Hispanic person needs to sit in a classroom with white people in order for them to have the same um, opportunities and the same outcomes as them. It's an extremely racist idea to think that a white person is inherently getting a better education and making better choices and are richer just because they are white. And it's an extremely racist idea to think that a black person is not as smart because they are black, which is the argument that neo-integrationists are making. The existence of schools like Dunbar may surprise neo-integrationists. This is what Coleman Hughes writes. But it does not surprise those of us who reject the idea that black kids must sit near white kids in order to learn algebra. Hughes goes on. Neo-integrationists' argument asserts that poor students do better in wealthy schools than they do in poor schools. Blacks are more likely to be poor than whites. Therefore, we must integrate schools so that black kids can reap the benefits of going to schools with kids from wealthier families. But this argument only works in a world where black is synonymous for poor. To the contrary, most black Americans are not poor and most poor Americans are not black. So this idea that we're seeing these lasting effects from Jim Crow laws, that this idea that, well, since we look across America and we still see that there are specific groups in America that seem to be segregated, that whites are living with whites, that blacks are living with blacks, and that they're not necessarily mixing as we think that they should. The idea that the government should step in and forcibly integrate society in that manner so that there's an equal distribution does not work. Thomas Solwell also writes about in his book, Discrimination and Disparities, that there were communities and there were times where the U.S. government tried to forcibly take people from lower income neighborhoods because they were black and try to integrate them into middle-class neighborhoods. And the results were quite unfortunate. The black people 
who had worked their way out of low-income neighborhoods and into middle-class neighborhoods, they were the ones that would complain at City Hall saying, why are you moving these black people into my neighborhood? They're destroying my home value. They're destroying the neighborhood. Why? Is it because they're black? No. It's because there are certain cultural norms and values that people adopt, certain work ethics that people adopt to get them out of poverty, to get them into the middle class. And a lot of white people are in poverty. There are a lot of white people in America who are making horrible choices that are keeping them in poverty. It is not a matter of the color of one's skin. It is a matter of the decisions of one's individual choices, work ethic, the things that they decide to do with their time and money. Solwell and Hughes both conclude that forced integration hurts people. People should have the freedom to self-sort and no one should be barred from entering a school based on their race. That means that if you have a school that is predominantly white and a black person applies and their grades are great, they should be able to get in. It also means that if there's a school that's predominantly black and a white person applies and their, their grades are equal, Why shouldn't they be able to get in? We shouldn't segregate based on the color of our skin. Likewise, if you are Asian and you are overperforming with all of your other Asian peers, you should not be denied from a school because your minority group and your skin color is overrepresented at a school. That is discrimination. It is discriminating against people who work hard to achieve something and you're denied access because of the color of your skin because your ethnic group is being overrepresented at a school. So to summarize and bring this home, was America born a racist and born to uphold racist ideologies? No, the opposite. America was born from its very conception to fight racist ideologies and say that all men are born free and equal. Number two, was there a time in America where the government enforced wicked laws? Yes. You know what? The the Democrats in the South ran Republicans out of the city because they did not like their abolitionist ideologies. And after, after the Civil Rights Act, after the Civil Rights Act, What happened? Democratic President Johnson created the Great New Society. And what did they do? They essentially said, well, black people are at a disadvantage. Black people aren't as capable, aren't as able. So we're going to set up this system called the welfare system to help these people. And again, it is based on this idea that that someone from a certain color is less than able to create a future for themselves, that they are less than and someone's better than, just as we saw with the school system where they said, well, black peoples are at a disadvantage because they are just being educated with other blacks. We need to put them in with white people. That actually hurt Dunbar High School. When Dunbar High School was forced to break up, their grades dropped, their, their level of success 
dwindled outside of those Jim Crow laws. But when we have an ideology that looks at groups as in in a power struggle, where you're not looking at the individual's action, but you're looking at entire segments of a people group and saying, well, you you have a greater status of victimhood. And because you have a status of victimhood, we are going to help you because you are not capable of helping yourself. All that does is hamstring people. And that's the very same argument that the slave owners made. The slave owners made the argument saying, well, these these people can't even help themselves. We're actually taking care of them by being a slave owner. The very same thing is happening with the welfare system is saying, well, these people can't take care of themselves. So we're taking care of them by providing this welfare. The very same thing is happening with the education system today where they say, well, This person couldn't possibly get into this school by themselves, so we're going to take care of them by helping and letting them get into the school, even though there are Asians who are scoring much higher scores that are being denied based on the fact that they are Asians, based on the fact that they are being, they're an overperforming minority group in America, who in South Korea in the 1960s, The average South Korean made $97 a year, 1960s. When when Asians were in America during World War II, Japanese were put in internment camps. The amount of racism and and racial slurs against Japanese and Chinese and, and Koreans were through the roof. And yet they are overachieving. Why are they overachieving? They're overachieving because of the decisions to sacrifice food, according to the New York Times, they sacrifice food in order to put their kids in prep schools and to take extra tutoring to perform well on their standardized testing. They're putting their values in a different place. And that does not matter on what color your skin is, but the decisions that you make as an individual. So I'm not saying that these laws have never existed or that there's never been any sort of systematic oppression or that there aren't laws that hold people back. Across the world today, currently today, while we're breathing, there are laws all across the world that says because you are of a certain ethnic group, nationality, or gender, you cannot work in this sector. You cannot get this job. They still exist. So it's confusing to me of why so many people are bringing up the failures of American policy in the past rather than seeing the fact that America has always fought to improve that 1% to say, okay, we're going we're gonna to work to change the system until it lives up to our ideals that it was founded on that all men are born free and equal. Now, I'm also saying The opposite, that the government needs to step out of social interventionism. The government did create problems with the Jim Crow laws and the segregation laws and the redlining. So if you live in this part of town, banks aren't going to give you a loan just because you live in this part of town. Or saying if you're at this skin color, you can only get a house in this side of town. Those were laws that were enforced. Wicked laws. But... 
in order to correct that, they shouldn't try to add more paint to the wall. They need to step back and let society self-sort themselves and say that all discrimination of any sort, both against Asians and against saying, hey, you can't live here because you're from a certain ethnicity, which again happens all across the world today, should be illegal. It should be wrong. And we will, as the American government, prosecute against people who use discrimination in any manner, both positive or negative. There's another part of this question that I want to hit, which is the health care system. And we can see social interventionism of the government overstepping their bounds and domains of authority manifest in the healthcare system in America as well today. In the healthcare system, it is not a free market. It is highly regulated. In this high regulation, you and I, when we go to the doctors, there is no price shopping. There is no comparison. If we break our arm and we go into the ER, we don't have, a, we don't have any idea how much it's going to cost us until on the back end, which is unlike any other business that you and I would interact with. We're going to want to know how much is this going to cost, and we're going to price shop. But today, the healthcare system is controlled by, by the government through high regulations, and that causes prices to go up, and that causes there to be little to no ability for different doctors and companies to differentiate themselves through the competitive market. because the customer has no ability to choose between the difference between hospital A and hospital B. At the same time, this reduces doctors actually wanting to enter into that field because they are going to be capped. So if the government stepped in more with more government regulation, all that would do is cause doctors do not want to become doctors. Why would you go and, and study to become a doctor for 10 or 12 years, rack up $500,000 to a million dollars of debt to enter into a field where all your prices are controlled and regulated and you're never going to be able to get out of debt? The more overstep and oversight that the government has into the free market, such as healthcare, will only make the system worse. So what is a solution? The solution is not government interventionism, social interventionism. The solution is let people sort their own lives out. Let people and let the market sort its own self out. Now I can hear the questions already. Well, wouldn't that mean that there's some doctors who are just going to take advantage of society? Yes, just like there are some mechanics that are dirty and charge people way more money than they need to pay. And in the same breath, that's why people learn to avoid those kinds of mechanics. That's why people learn to avoid those types of salespeople, those slimy salespersons. And the same thing will happen within the healthcare system. So yes, there are disparities of outcomes, as Aaron suggested. And yes, a lot of them do come from ideologies. And yes, some of those ideologies have been 
perpetuated by the government, by the government enforcing unjust laws. So the question is, why should the government go ahead and enforce more unjust laws upon an entire segment of the population based on the color of their skin to judge partially to give to another group based on the color of their skin, not based on any sort of actual merit or on any actual crime. When you view people as victim groups, when you clump people together as a victim group rather than viewing the individuals within society, society will suffer and individuals will suffer because the logical outplay of seeing everything as victim groups and everyone within a certain political group based on their color, sex, or gender will cause us to infringe upon people's freedoms and liberties to try to control society and people for an equality of outcome rather than trusting and giving the individual control and agency over their life while having laws in place to protect people so that they can sue or that they can file a lawsuit when their liberties and their freedom is being infringed upon. So yes, ideologies do make a huge difference when you have an ideology that views the individual as having the agency to choose and act in the world and not see skin color and let people work and live and go to school where they like and take up professions how they like, judging justly, not with partiality, according to the individual rather than the identity group, for better or for worse, people are well off. Government should pull back into its God-given domain of society and not try to create equality of outcome within the community. Rather than they should work to uphold the laws when an individual violates another individual's liberty. That is all for today's episode. Please, if you have any questions about this episode or any of the other episodes, please WhatsApp me at plus one two zero two nine two two zero two two zero. I love getting your questions and stay tuned for the last part of this question where we talk about the atrocities that the church has done upon many people groups throughout history. And we're going to begin to unpack the seven different spheres of society and what roles each sphere ought to play within society. It's going to be a great episode. I hope to see you there. Remember, you are a change maker. Go out, pursue truth so that you can own the future. 